Hello and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. We've had a succession of crowd pleasers in recent weeks and today we're going to keep that vein going. I am joined by my favourite owner of a ponytail, the master of adventures in history land. When I was thinking what am I going to say for this, I nearly called him the master of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, but that implies that he owns a farm and likes to get drunk, which isn't the case. Um, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, uh, which looks at the Maratha and Jat campaigns. Also, also author of Wild East, which um, looks at um, the, a series of conflicts within the Far East. He, he says, looking at, at the author, just to make sure that he's got that right. Uh, apparently so. It is, of course, the redoubtable, my esteemed and always softly spoken friend, Josh Proven. Welcome back, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for the as ever generous introduction, Zach. <laughs> happy, always happy to be back. It's just because I heap, comment, heap comments on you, heap compliments on you. This is going to be a long show if I keep making mistakes like this. Um, it's because I keep heaping compliments on you. Um, does the ego no harm whatsoever? Indeed, indeed. Well, if Napoleon could be a narcissist, then why can't we all? If it's good enough for Napoleon, apparently it's good enough for everyone. Um, <laughs> he, did all, he, did, he did all right with it for a while. So This is, this is true. <laughs> this is true. Um, I talk about Wild East and, and your work on the Far East. We are kind of going to go in that sort of vein with this one. I've been endeavouring to diversify the content ever so slightly and just look beyond sort of the, the Britain versus France thing. So I thought, well, why don't we tap into the sort of inverted commas Chinese market? Not that I'm anticipating the one billion people currently residing in China to all suddenly start listening to the polyonicist because I'm realistic. I was actually hugely surprised that this show even airs in China, uh, but apparently it does. I have a very slim uh, proportion of individuals who do tune in um, in China. Welcome, folks. Um, although it could, of course, just be people who are holidaying in China tuning into the Napoleon Assist on holiday, but we won't go there. Um, but we are going to look at China in the Napoleonic era, which I'll be honest with you, completely ignorant on this. I am. Um, I had to turn around to Josh and go, so what's the deal? And he said, here's the deal, because it's Josh and he knows everything about everything. Um, so off the back of that, I thought, well, this is really interesting and it's completely neglected. And actually what we're going to see is that a lot of what happens in China during the Napoleonic era sets the stage for what then happens, particularly in relation to the British Empire rocking up and basically ruining everything um, and selling all of the opium to them and ruining Chinese society and just generally being quite unpleasant. Um, so it, it's going to be a really interesting one. Uh, I'm going to ask, firstly, how, how do you just know this stuff? Where did you start in terms of pulling all of this together? Ah, well, that requires you to be somewhat acquainted with my um, my insect-like attention span and the the fact that I when I was when I was when I was younger I, I had a very voracious appetite to know all things if I could that 
and it was I mean it was partly driven by just wanting to play games really as I've said in some other uh, interviews um I would I, I I believe that the the idea to look into China came around because um pr probably because I wanted to see if there were any toy soldiers I could buy or something to do with it um and that'll get you to the opium wars because that's sort of the touch point for most people with Britain and China and, and fighting and exciting things that happen in the East. Um, and uh, yeah, I bought, I think the first proper, I think that I, the first book I remember reading about the Opium Wars is Julia Lovell's book on the Opium Wars. And I think that was just, I bought that just because I felt ornery one day about my interests in history. And I said, well, what, what, what is the Opium Wars about then? Let's find out about this. That really sums it up. Um, no, no discipline in my interests is, 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 the, is the subtitle. I like it. There's honesty for you. I just wanted some nice toy soldiers. That's, that's how it all, but hey, you know, Sharp fans, if you're listening, don't judge because we know you're exactly the same, myself included. Let's, let's do some history though. And inevitably we have to begin with context here. We're in a region where people, most listeners I would have thought are not going to know what the context is um, because majority of listeners being in the Western hemisphere won't be that familiar with Chinese history. So during this period, it's the Qing dynasty. I'm hoping I've got the pronunciation right there. I, in, I, in the absolute name of making sure that we put our best foot forward, I have to say that for some reason it is pronounced Qing. Oh, it's Qing. Oh, oh, that that really puts the the cat amongst the pigeons. Again, because... again, again, when I again when I when I read the first books about China, I did exactly the same thing, and I had you do have to hear it said, but it's Qing. Okay, so we got the Qing Dynasty. Mm -hmm. um, now that's going to really mess with my head because. I, this is going to create a divide between what I thought I knew from basically watching documentaries, I'll be honest, mm. um, and the, the little that I've read, and I've separated the two dynasties in my head. Um, so this is going to be a really interesting one. It's also um, confusing because there is a Qin, Qin dynasty at the very beginning. And I was going to say, but that's a, the early one. That's Shi Huangdi, right? Exactly. That's the Terracotta army. And then you have the Qing dynasty, which is at the end. Okay, so we've so, got the Qing dynasty in charge in China. Yeah. How had the Qing dynasty risen to prominence and, and such prominence? Because this is the point that dynasties come and go over the course of Chinese history, because Chinese history, like all history, is incredibly long. And there are lots of kind of dynasties that, that rise, solidify, and then crumble away. Um, and there's a lot of in certain points, there's so much backstabbing and internal rivalries and things of that going on that it rivals Game of Thrones, quite frankly. So talk us through how the Qing dynasty gets to where it's at just prior to what we'll call the Napoleonic Age. Mm -hmm. Well, um, absolutely. There's a lot of there's a lot of backstabbing and political machinations going on in, in China. They could easily have an HBO series just about uh, the Warring States period or the Three Kingdoms period. Um, Make it happen, people. Make it happen. Absolutely. And um, put dragons in it if you want. Uh, it's in the mythology. Uh, and the, It's China. Uh, it's appropriate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hollywooded up. They'll love it. Um, 
The, um, but okay, so the Qing dynasty came to power in China in 1644 as uh, leaders of a confederation of uh, Jurchen peoples who came from the Northeast, who became collectively called the Manchu and who took advantage of the social, political and economic destabilization of the Ming dynasty to supplant them and succeed them to the so-called mandate of heaven. Uh, this mystical power, the mandate of heaven, comes from the conception of heavenly power, which bears certain resemblance to the figure of God, um, but is a more abstract uh, concept, which Confucianists called the sky, heaven, or supreme ruler, and who, they said, needed appeased with sacrifices and rituals, which formed part of, um, well, an important part of the emperor's general duties since very dim antiquity. Um, the dynasty, the Qing dynasty properly consolidated, was, was, pro eh, was properly consolidated by the Kangxi emperor in the late uh, 17th and early 18th centuries. Um, and uh, just for your information, the Professor Jeremy Black named Kangxi as one of the, the foremost military figures of the long 18th century. Now, during this time, the expansion of Qing power saw the empire of China grow to its largest ever extent to closely approximate its modern borders, and the population exploded due to improved farming and land development techniques. And the historian Michael Wood writes that China was the world's biggest economy, generated by an immense internal market. It was a political entity uh, and uh, inheritor of such scale and civilizational accomplishment that whole books could be written about Europe during the Qing dynasty rather than China during the Napoleonic era. And in fact, that is a valid point of view to look at things at from. I mean, this is, this is, so 1644, just to sort of set it into a context for the British audience, apologies for uh, listeners elsewhere. So that's the period when you've got the English Civil War going on. So this is a long lasting dynasty. Okay, you can turn around and say, look, there are plenty of long lasting dynasties in Europe during this period, not least Bourbons. Um, the Habsburg dynasty lasts a, a fairly long time. So, you know, this isn't unknown, but it's still quite a, a long running one. What's the reasoning for that kind of stability and success? Why, I guess, why is it that you have these periods where Dynasties seem to establish themselves and then they last for 100, 150 years, sometimes even longer, and then sort of crumble. It's, it's almost as though there's a sort of a cycle within this, within Chinese history. It's sort of very Fukuyama-esque um, for folks who aren't familiar. Fukuyama is the guy who argues that history isn't linear, it's, it's cyclical in nature. Is there any kind of obvious indication of why is this about geography? Is it just sort of hard to control China? Because that doesn't seem to work in my head because if it was hard to control China, you wouldn't have these periods of stability and economic prosperity and all the rest of it for it all to then go wrong. Yeah, well, the, 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 story, of, um, the story of China is in many ways the story of the rise and fall of dynasties and the... Um, the sort of the um, sort of revolution series of revolutions, if you want to coin that term, that that 
instead of upturning the way things work, inherit the way things work. Um, the Chinese empire, if you want to give it a general name, was something that everybody who managed to topple it also wanted to inherit and continue. Everybody who became emperor, you know, these, these, these dynasty changes, they still, they all became emperors, they all became emperors of China. Concept of China in itself is a little is a little vague as they the emperors themselves didn't call themselves emperors of China. They were the emperor, they were the Ming, they were the Qing, they were the they were the Tang, that and things like that. But there was a great, despite the fact that it was a, a very it would it could be a very fragile um, system in which to 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 create a an empire it was also a very solid one uh, it had like the roots of the civilization we're talking about go back far into um, what we would call a classical classical ancient history um, the rules and the rules and laws that governed it were were very much embedded after a certain point there were there were times of inc incredible chaos in the warring states period and three kingdoms and things like that but um, they always tended to, to come out the other end in some so, some sort of unity, uh, which actually is one of the first lines of the great novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is China's most popular novel, uh, which goes something like all that is united will be broken and all that is broken will once again come together. Um, and that is essentially the, the motto of Chinese history empires dynasties breaking and then being reformed under a new guy to hold the mandate of heaven was one of the most important things everyone who succeeded to that you you, you know someone who someone who topples an emperor would generally go go out of his way to say you have lost the mandate of heaven that gives me the right to take it from you you know, it, it, it is it is specially ordained and given by heaven to leaders to lead. And with that, you have the whole Confucian kind of um, sort of workings of state driving into motion as you go through the centuries uh, that you're dealing with here. Essentially, it, it, it was essentially to, to like sort of sum up the ramble. It's it's just a very robust um, it's just a very robust thing you're dealing with that was always able to rise from its own ashes, essentially, to this day, practically. It is. I mean, that's very poetic, isn't it? Sort of rising phoenix like from the ashes, but that is an apt metaphor, uh, actually, for Chinese history. Um, we should talk about ordinary, inverted commas, folks within this because i don't want this to just be about you know leaders and all the rest of it for those living in the qing empire what's everyday life like i feel like there are books to get dedicated to that subject i think there are literally books that were written in the 80s like life in the qing empire and things like certainly life in the ming uh, dynasty i think there's uh, and ming and tang um which is a fascinating subject you know the daily life daily life stuff is one of my favorite parts of history. 
Um, but especially Chinese history is replete with uh, some amazing, literally jaw-dropping, in some cases, records that could give us snapshots of everyday life in, in itself, not just scholars writing today. You know, the, going back as long as you can care to go, educated people were writing records, laws, novels, best epics, poems, histories, and autobiographies. And indeed, the concept of autobiography was very old in China by the 19th century. There was one writer named Shen Fu, who was born in what is uh, now Suzhou in Jiangsu province in uh, 1763. Uh, so only really a few years older than Napoleon, really. Um, and uh, he wrote an autobiography called Six Records of a Floating Life, which he completed in 1807. And it's considered one of the best records for everyday life in Qing, China. Now he wrote that to be born in the gentry in 1763, or the 27th year of the reign of Qianlong, was to be truly privileged. And I quote, heaven blessed me and life could not have been more full. It was a time of peace and plenty, unquote. Now the consequence of the Manchu conquest that gave the Qing empire, that gave birth to the Qing empire, um, the elite of the land were all mostly descended from Manchurian nobility and towards the end of the empire, the Qing made what we now call Mandarin, or what the government officials spoke, the state language. Manchu officials, princes and royalty governed a massive population, mostly made up of an ethnic group called the Han, Han Chinese, which remains the dominant ethnic demographic to this day, and who could also rise to important positions as well. The empire also ruled over uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans and Mongols and other such peoples and attempted to organize the social structure in a uniform sort of way and did so partially through education uh, with everybody expected to dress in a Manchu style and to be educated in a Manchu way. So at the beginning, it's, it's, I mean, it's like, it's sort of the pattern that, the pattern that you were just talking about you have a great period of expansion and stability. And then classically in the Qing era, uh, it, it grows to such an extent that it basically outruns itself and problems start to occur. Um, so it's, I think for, uh, as, as is the way across the world, pretty much, if you're of a certain class, you could expect that it was, as, could expect to be fairly happy with your life. Um, and it was just harder down all the way down the, the rungs. But by the time of this period, say the 1780s to the early 1800s, you're looking at a lot more pressure on society and people um, trying to make, life is getting harder for people. And talking about life getting harder for people, if you are a dissenter, if you're discontent, what happens to you? You know, in, in Europe in this time, this is not a time when dissent is, is really sort of allowed. There are varying forms of ways of cracking down on, on people. Um, and people will go, oh, well, UK freedom of expression. Well, sort of, but not really think about what happens at Peterloo just a, a few years after this period closes. So what's it like in China where we because this is the trouble, right? We have this association uh, with Chinese history of communist Chinese history, which is very much about limitation of freedom of expression and, and dissent. Um, the little that I know about Chinese history actually 
is about the the Qin period, so right at the start, uh, which is ancient history. So you know, there's a, there's a big gap in between where some other stuff could potentially have happened. So what what's the story when it comes to wanting to express yourself and not being happy? Um, that is a complicated thing to answer. Um, the the communists idea of firm state control is not necessarily new in China. Um, if anything, some might argue they inherited it. Um, but at the same time, it depends on what dynasty you're in. There is a trend through Chinese history that it becomes more and more conservative as it gets closer to the 20th century and the communist era is essentially just an extension of the conservatism of the Qing dynasty because there's a massive flowering of the arts and, and sciences and, and culture and things like that, say in the Tang dynasty, very famously, which kind of puts China at the center of the world and um, what, like far ahead of other civilizations at that time. Um, it all, I suppose it also sort of depends what we, we, what we mean by dissent is, um, but everybody is subject to the law and the Qing did have an extensive legal code, which they introduced when they came in, um, which in some way or another was based on the law of the Tang dynasty indeed at its roots, uh, which when it was written, like I say, was one of the most impressive in the world. The, the law codes were heavily influenced by the teachings of Confucianism, which can be seen in the fact that there was a great, there was a great element of repentance in the criminal system. Our magistrates, for instance, would be expected to try and get a criminal to repent and see the error of his ways before punishing him. Um, the problem is that no criminal could really be sentenced until some sort of confession had been extracted, which is why the Chinese became so famous in methods of torture. Um, this, of course, meant that most people, this is not to say that other nations did not torture people, you know, not to stigmatize this or anything like that. This is just people use torture in different ways. Um, so this, of course, meant that most people tried to work around the law rather than lean on it, which, of course, causes a great deal of disenfranchisement. But at a basic point, there were five degrees of punishment the magistrate could dish out um, under the Qing. Two, there were two types of beatings. There was penal servitude, exile, and death, the latter of which could only be confirmed by the emperor himself. Um, one of the most infamous of capital punishments could be doled out to traitors and rebels, and this varied slightly over the thousands of years you're dealing with, but involved the execution of practically your entire family and extended family if you were found guilty of a particularly dangerous type of treason. So, if you want to put it in a nutshell, the Qing Empire is a conservative government and very traditional, um, but it doesn't um, it doesn't sort of quite crush all forms of expression either. Okay, that's interesting because that leads us on quite neatly to where we go next, which is that you know all is not well. Right, there are problems that are emerging. So talk us through what's kind of bubbling away. Cause this is, I mean, spoiler alert people, but this is the start of the decline. So, so what's, what's going wrong? Well, there was plenty of things to choose from really. Um, and though uh, not as abrupt as a starting pistol, this is definitely 
part of the decline, I believe they call it the century of humiliation or something like that. And so, although plenty and privilege might have been the case for the gentry and the Manchu, Ayurved and Leet, for the wider population in the rural areas, even under the hand of the Qianlong Emperor, they struggled. So despite what Chen Fu wrote, the accomplishments of the civilization up to that point, the Qing dynasty was recognizably on some shaky ground. With that mass population explosion, uh, inflation as a result of that, falling tax revenues and the cost of maintaining the ruling class, all working to sow dissent. Um, and not a lot was being done about it, or people weren't noticing the signs that it was getting to a dangerous point. In 1781, uh, you start to see very dramatic instances of rural banditry, um, indicating signs of unrest in the provinces. Um, now, in, in China, this sort of thing could actually be very dangerous and whole districts could be lost or given over to banditry. Um, the scale of when things go wrong in China is, uh, is not the scale that you would commonly think of for unrest and rebellion in Europe. Um, it also took uh, other forms uh, the, than just simple peasants, say, holding up or raiding villages. Um, the year it was found, that year in, in 1781, in fact, uh, it was found that about 850 men of the garrison of Chongwu and on the Fujian coast had illegally been leveling taxes and interfering in local trade. Uh, so basically just running the local area as their own little fiefdom. And so the, govern, the government obviously said, well, that, we can't be doing that. Um, so they had to import thousands of troops to arrest the entire garrison. Um, so, you know, this is, that, that's a dramatic example, but the emperor, it also shows that the emperor wasn't as responsive as he should have been to local affairs, some might say, uh, apparently feeling that, you know, the, the local governors and provincial uh, magistrates should have the resources to deal with local problems themselves without really having to dig the imperial ore in. However, at the end of the century loomed, the, the magistrates found themselves increasingly overwhelmed by their responsibilities. There's been seen the tasks that faced officials in China were on a scale not really seen anywhere else in the world. It was not so much the practical inability to gain support and direction from the emperor, but something a little more ethereal. Uh, we return to Michael Wood, who notes that many relied on an ethos as much as a direction transmitted from the emperor, which is now distinctly lacking. And it was as if people could start to sense that that mandate of heaven, the right by which the emperor ruled, was slipping from the grasp of the Qing. This fact was not lost on quite a lot of people, actually. In 1793, a scholar from uh, Changzhou named Hong Yangji wrote an essay called On the Governance and Well-Being of the Empire, where he tried to address the, the issue of the, popu the, the population explosion. Um, in a, and that it was driving an unstable economy deeper and deeper into the mud. And it wasn't going away by itself, he said. One of his many points being that there were 20 times the amount of people that there were a century before. And the available land never kept up with the demand, which is really quite something to say in a nation the size of China. <clears throat> but um, the stress that that produced 
basically he said at this at this point the only way that stress is going to be dealt with is by natural disasters which actually is another theme in chinese history of natural disasters forcing change uh, uh putting strain on a political system and then causing change um so to put this in perspective in the end of the reign of kang si the, the population which is at the end of the end of the uh beginning of the 18th century um the population had been around 150 million and by 1790 it was nearly 3 million uh, with an even higher population growth in the Yangtze Delta. And so works like that written by Hong were troublesome to the government as we've seen uh, they weren't massively happy on being critiqued and um, it wasn't received well uh, and anti-intellectualism, censorship and book inquisitions kept China's brightest minds very much mired at a time when fresh thinking was needed and the and so there was no nobody was really looking at these things like population unemployment economic stagnation all straining under the unfair tax system as things that needed to be dealt with um uh and brought and then at the same time brought equal strain on the government to try and keep balance which they were just constantly failing to do. So yeah, problems. Problems indeed. Um, that kind of awareness of what I guess in the West we'd call Malthusian economics, right? This idea exactly, that exactly. your population can grow exponentially, your production rate really can't mate. You've got to do something about this. Um, I do like that tale though of, of the, the <laughs> that region where the army just goes, we're going to run things ourselves with the army. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? You're going to call the army? Oh, wait, we are the army. You know, and, and this idea that, uh, yes, I, I need an army to bring my own army into, into check. Um, let's not overstate the inevitability of this, though, right? Um, there are responses and ways of dealing with all of this. And as I say, that decline... You know, this idea that these problems are going to lead to it all going horribly wrong aren't a given. So how do how do those in power try and resolve this problem? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's it certainly doesn't. Yeah, problems don't implicitly indicate declined um, ever, really. Um, it just it looks that way to us with hindsight is, is what it is, what it is. Uh, the troubles in the country that were encountered in addressing the, the issues of the late 18th century should have perhaps suggested something wasn't working, but that comes down to identifying as, as at the same time what was wrong. And to be honest, fairly sweeping imperial reform was probably what was needed. Um, but as we've seen the emperors of this period were withdrawing more and more from the practical running of the empire. And the, um, so in some cases, unavoidably losing touch with political reality, relying on formidable bureaucracy of mandarins to keep things running. Um, up until this point, people had been sort of kept happy with the um, with that great impetus for social mobility, the um, the the imperial examinations, um, the, which was how people advanced socially. It was a great engine of social mobility. Um, imperial ministers who ran the government recruited a vast bureaucracy using that examination system, which dated back to the 14th century. 
which although meritocratic and uh, the main way you could get ahead as a family, as a clan, um, was so wound up in concepts of family honor and prestige, that those who failed in the examinations got trapped in a continual cycle of do-overs that sometimes led to madness. Um, and it's implicit that reliance on the knowledge of the classics and Confucianism, etc., did not make it especially useful for facing the troubles of the encroaching modern world and tended to enshrine conservative values. Now, as we've said, the, the empire was in desperate need of revitalization and reform. That was what could have been done, I guess. But the mandarins that could have done something saw most changes a threat to the stability of the empire, which is a reasonable feeling. You know, if you try and change things, you're actively destabilizing what is there, what works technically. Um, and so basically it, the, there, was, there was no particular answer to inflation except to continue taxing people. Um, rebellions were dealt with the traditional way, send the troops in and crush them and try and maintain the happiness of the people through um, the emperor's traditional role as the as the as the son of heaven, as the the bringer of order and balance, um, and if we return again to Mr. Wood, you may guess I'm a fan. Um, he identified the question that faced the the officialdom of the Qing Empire in the first years of the 19th century, and indeed the fears of many conservative nationalists to this day, could their civilization adopt to outside ideas or new ideas and still retain its identity? This, it must be admitted, is a common idea of imperial China, a brilliant civilization, a great lineage and accomplishment, which over its history had repeatedly shown itself to be the most advanced in the world, but that was ruled by a succession of imperial bureaucracies centered on an ornate litany of almost Bronze Age rituals uh, from which the nation supposedly derived its health, tranquility, and prosperity. Um, but far from being inherently superstitious and conservative, there had always been dissenters amidst the artists and intellectuals of China uh, who were ever ready to try and bring issues to the fore through their art. But, some of these were less subtle than others. And it should be said that the likes of Confucius and things like that, people like that, their whole deal in China was basically telling the emperor where he went wrong um, and becoming the guidebook as to how to do it right. That's why he was important in a nutshell to the Chinese. Um, and these less than subtle people I allude to from the 1780s onwards, the newest batch went so far as to even question the practicality of divinely appointed imperial monarchy, despite the usual obstacles inherent with being forward thinking under such a system, which as we've said, is the sort of the censorship book burnings, constant threat of being branded to center and locked away. Um, you know, education and private academies saw many Confucian scholars become political activists who would argue with annoying repetition that successive emperors had not lived up to the Confucian ideal and suggesting that a more devolved system that had less arbitrary taxation, punishment and more liberty be its replacement. But no, and bear in mind, this is not some, you know, the, nobody had been reading Voltaire, right? This is, an, this is something that happened inside China um, and had happened before, I might add, there had been a very li liberal school of thought running all the way through Chinese history. Um, 
in many different ways, but no one was really listening is the point. Um, what did they what did they try to do to, to, to stop what was happening? Very little because they didn't really want to see it, I guess. This is not a moment at which it's a wise idea to voluntarily change leader. And yet in 1796, the the Chinese emperor voluntarily steps down. So what you have is a situation where Qianlong hands over to Jia Qing, um, which, and this is a thing about respect, right? And not wanting to outlast, was it his dad? His grandfather. His grandfather. Okay, so, so this is kind of like what? William becoming king and then deciding that it would be a bad idea to outlast Elizabeth II and so abdicating, except that you're in an alternative universe where the royal family actually runs the country. That's, that's the scale of what we're looking at here. Mm -hmm. um, I guess two questions. First, firstly, why, why was this essential? Because my gut is that Qianlong was a better ruler than Jia, is it Jia or Jia Qing? It's probably Jia um, Qing. It's probably, so, soft, probably softer, but I'm not a Chinese linguist, so. Well, I'm not any linguist <laughs> of any description. I can't even speak English properly, so, you know. Um, so, I mean, I mean, talk us through this, because is that fair that, um, that Jia Qing is, is not really that up to it? Uh, it, it would be fair to say that if you were to place um, Qianlong and Jiaqing next to each other, you would prefer the father to the son, especially in the circumstances you're dealing with. Uh, Qianlong, as you said, decided it would be disrespectful to reign longer than his grandfather, Kangxi. And, but because he was undoubtedly a wise man, although he, he might He's sort of semi-legendary in the West because he was the first Chinese emperor anybody really could be able to put a proper face to. He was the first emperor to sort of properly allow foreigners to come into China and to his court to talk to him. And he had his portrait painted in a European manner, which is a magnificent portrait, I might add, which you should all check out. And he, he was very interested in Western sciences and things like that. Um, and famously, he, he, had, um, he, he entertained the first British uh, embassy uh, to China, but we'll get to that later. Um, he, um, he was a wise man. He had been at the job for a very long time. He was in his 80s or so in 1796. Um, and he felt that his son, Jia Qing, was not suited really yet to face the challenges that we've been talking about. But again, he had this respect thing for his, his father, the great uh, Kangxi, and he wanted to abdicate. It's, it could also be because he was getting old um, and he could feel himself getting old and he wanted perhaps to start stepping slowly back. And this was a good enough excuse that made sense to everybody in China because he is the emperor, remember? He's a divine figure. Abdicating is a very big deal for such a person to do. 
So he didn't really go away. What he became was um, sort of emperor emeritus. And he sat- I mean, that's a position that, that's got to be instituted as an official thing, right? <laughs> emperor emeritus. Exactly. I've got a feeling that Oxford University need to just kind of institute that for, <laughs> for a, a particular um, college or something so that people can describe themselves as Emperor Emeritus of... <laughs> it's weird, but that's, that's, I believe, the closest translation to whatever title he, he took up. And he basically continues to run the country um, while Jiaqing is, is technically emperor. And, uh, but when he died in 1799, no answer had been found yet to addressing the rising population the unrest therein, the question of the foreigners, who a lot of people would eventually come to blame for all the ills of China, despite the fact that China had been perfectly capable of messing itself up and then fixing itself by itself um, for thousands of years. Um, and to be honest, Ye Qing would spend the most of his reign asking himself, what would dad do? I mean, that's ever so slightly awkward, isn't it? You know, how, how do I rule in my father's image rather than sort of fly solo? Um, does it work trying to rule in his dad's image? Or you know, is there kind of a problem with sort of long shadow of daddy? And is there an argument to be made that if he'd been willing to grab the, the, the reins of, of leadership a bit more emphatically in his own style, he might have been more successful? Mm, it's, it's, a, it's an open question, I guess. I mean, a lot of heirs to successful rulers have this problem. Um, not everybody can be a great king or a great emperor. You can basically kind of ride it out, and that's sort of what Jie Qing does. Um, he doesn't preside over the disastrous stuff, that is to come, that's in his favor. He technically does see through the Napoleonic era in quotes. Um, and he does this by more or less trying to do what Qianlong would have done, which isn't a bad idea. It's just, he also slips up from time to time. And in fairness, if I'm remembering correctly, by this period, it is becoming actually more and more difficult for the emperor to actually rule um, that massive bureaucracy that exists around him uh, at the moment. So there is that problem as well. It is actually, it's not, it's not like exactly the idea of his ancestors of Kangxi and, and, and those who came before him, um, who, could, who went out and sort of led their armies and things like that. The emperor could obviously do anything he so willed, theoretically, but at the same time, if you're talking about actually running the place, that took a great amount of skill and understanding of how things worked. And I'm not terribly sure Jia Qing had a handle on that. So <laughs> enter the villains of this story. You know, you've got a, a country that has seen its, its episodic heyday because those heydays come and go. It's starting to go a little bit wrong. I mean, in some respects, you could kind of call this India-esque, right? You know, there's 
perhaps the, the comparison here is superficial, but it does strike me that what you've got here is not a million miles away from the situation that the East India Company and the British seek to exploit over the course of the 1790s. Um, and enter, once enter the fray, do the British. Um, so let's talk about foreign influence within this. Um, why are the British poking their nose in, first of all? Is this just the British, you know, being the British? Hey, this is a nice shiny piece of land. It would look nice if I owned it, wouldn't it? There is, there is something to that. Um, what is useful to remember uh, with British imperialism is that it was first built on commerce. Uh, back in the 16th century and everything like that, you, you did at this point, you're dealing with something that was built out of a sort of an, a, a violent entrepreneurial spirit of Tudor, I don't know, buccaneering pretty much, uh, that sought to go out and, you know, make a lot of money. Uh, the East was obviously a very attractive place to do this. Um, nobody got to, you know, nothing happened sequentially, you know, through the 17th century, you had what was going on in India, you had stuff going on in Siam, you had stuff going on uh, in the Horn of Africa and across the, the, the west coast of Africa, you had stuff going on in America. Uh, this is where sort of like the seeds of colonialism are planted and they're planted through these, these merchant houses. Um, the East India Company is essentially the, the East India Company. Um, the, the weird, in a weird way, it is, I always think it's a little Eurocentric to attribute the fall of the Qing dynasty to the foreigners alone. In fact, the Chinese, as I said, has always been very effective uh, in removing unwanted dynasties and affecting change on their own. Um, the Qing crumbled from within technically first, much as the Ming had before them. And the and they were actually propped up by the Europeans, which kept them alive for for a certain, to be honest, for almost another century. Um, uh, but it weakened them politically that that had to happen, and that's something to keep keep in mind as well. S British interaction in China uh, came began with the traders, as I said, no surprise there, uh, through the 17th century, a, a specifically a rocky, precarious relationship developed at uh, Canton uh, with Portuguese, with Portuguese Macau at the center of it all, because the Portuguese were even better at getting to places that nobody wanted them than the British were. And the, um, I mean, they, they managed to stay in Nagasaki after the Japanese slaughtered all of the Christians. So, you know, this is quite impressive stuff they could they could pull off but uh, no sorry i'm very sorry that's the dutch the dutch are almost as good as the portuguese the portuguese and then the dutch <laughs> they're very impressive and underserved in their ability to to get into places that nobody wants them but the portuguese were in macau and yeah the it was it was found to be a very rich um trade you know in quotes it's almost like a verb um the the tea and porcelain and silk were the main goals, and it was remarkably successful and well-run enterprise between the East India Company and the Chinese customer officials. 
It was so successful that the British began to try and think of ways to get a permanent arrangement there, which is, you know, very much like what happened in India. Um, the difference, of course, here is that there is an emperor of China. There is a central authority that runs everything. The Mughals didn't actually run all of India, for instance, um, and, you know, they were in decline as well by semi-declined when the British got there. Um, the, the, the Qing, different kettle of fish. The um, permanent arrangement that was sought, uh, sought, therefore, is very typical of what the, you hear about the East India Company looking for, which is a permanent trading position in the country with certain rights and fixed tariffs and things like that, that they essentially dictate. And they used to do this by multiple different ways, usually by selling themselves sometimes to the local authority. They did this in Persia, where they basically rented out their navy to the Shah to defeat the Portuguese and then said, could we please have a warehouse if you're not using one? You know, and it tended to work. But the Chinese took a very firm line and restricted them to a very specific place for a specific amount of the year and at very, very high taxes, which benefited the Chinese merchants um, over everybody else. But it was so rich that you could still make money from it is the weird thing. By the mid 18th century, the first attempt to um, remove some of those restrictions, which, which is the British were just feeling insulted by basically and embarrassed by, um, that forbade foreigners from trading, uh, trading anywhere but the mouth of the Pearl River was attempted. The East India Company traded um, had been trading for over a century, but only in a limited way. That's, I think it was for like five months of the year uh, at Canton, which is now uh, Guangzhou. And a petition written by a company overseer named James Flint, who is really quite a Robert Louis Stevenson sort of fellow, reached Qianlong himself, who promised punishment for the wrongdoers and redress. Yay for the East India Company, except that he didn't promise any other trading rights. And when it got down to the judicial level, those uh, magistrates sort of, sort of erased out that whole bit about punishing wrongdoers and stuff like that. So nothing really happened. Uh, that was in 1759, and it was far from an official embassy. But the first of these was led by a chap called Lord McCartney, a very, very flashy chap indeed. And at the time, Qianlong was 82, although apparently McCartney said he looked 20 years younger. Good for you. You're worth it. And uh, I'm sure you had some great skincare regimen going on. And McCartney came in 1793 with a dazzling embassy to strike a trade deal that would allow permanent British uh, uh, mercantile settlement. Um, Long entertained the British and had them chase him around from palaces to hunting camps for a few months. He was polite and diplomatic, um, but the answer had actually been a foregone conclusion from before McCartney even ever set foot in China, and that was no. Um, the emperor's mandarins issued a statement that told the British in very firm tones that the empire of the Qing did not, did not need anything from Europe and looked on the embassy as little more than the British offering tribute which in a way was, was all that had actually happened. Um, so McCartney left empty-handed, spinning a, a great web of, of sort of positives 
um, uh, without having achieved one of his stated aims. He wrote a famous report of the Chinese empire and a detailed journal of his time there. It's now considered invaluable to historians because it is actually quite fair. He wasn't, he wasn't a terrible, terrible man. <laughs> he actually did uh, look at things and see how they, how they worked and reported very accurately. Um, but in this report, he called the Chinese empire a crazy old man of war that had somehow been kept afloat by talented people, but could not avoid eventual wreckage without hope of repair, which is actually quite accurate. Um, he hoped, he however did have hopes. I mean, he, he tried basically to tell people that if you stick it out, it's in such a rocky kind of place that we'll probably get a trade deal at some point, just, just be patient. And he was everybody was so keen to kind of continue trying to get into china because for instance if you want a picture of how lucrative this trade was to the british in 1760 the tea was a three million a year operation three million pounds in old you know a year operation and the british tax on it accounted for 10 percent of the treasury's income in 1804 the china fleet was carrying eight million pounds worth of goods in today's money now i know what you're thinking drugs are involved somewhere and you'd be right but interestingly in the late 18th century and into the early 19th tea not opium which did not exceed one quarter of the revenue for imports for the chinese in 1793 was the money-making drug but things were changing as we've seen china merchants famously did not consider european goods of much value unless they were heavy caliber weapons as they could get everything else they needed internally. This is completely accurate. When the Chinese said, we don't need anything from you, they weren't joking. They did actually manufacture everything they needed to run the country within it. However, um, they did rather like silver, which is what the British buyers paid for tea. Uh, as a result of this, there was not so much trade going on at Canton as simply buying and selling, which benefited the Chinese more than the British, as for decades, tea leaves with chinaware for ballast, inexpensive to produce and for the foreign market. And literally, if you like, if you if you watch uh, antiques shows and stuff like that, you'll hear experts talk about the fact that this Ming vase was literally made to sell to foreigners. You know, this this piece of chinaware, they made this to sell to Europeans at Canton. They didn't make it for the internal market, i.e. it's not as good. Um, <laughs> uh, and so that all that stuff flowed out and the silver flowed in. Now, the books show that during the company's financial crisis, that's the East India Company's financial crisis of the 1770s, it was found that the only healthy concern going, literally, was the trade from China. And it was this that kept the company and to some extent the British economy afloat. But it was expensive with the high taxes at either side, and the company did not have the silver to expend endlessly and disliked the advantage China exerted over their merchants. The answer came not long after the East India Company assumed a monopoly over the opium harvest in Bengal in 1773. Ominous music may not play. From then on, the company was shipping vast quantities of opium to Guangzhou, reaching 240 tons a year by 1796. By this point, the Chinese authorities were growing concerned about all the people getting high, which although taken medicinally for centuries now becoming a leisure habit, that was causing people to become addicted. 
the Yongzheng Emperor, who is Qianlong's pre direct predecessor, had banned places to smoke opium, but he had not banned the drug, which continued to flow into Canton illegally by dint of bribes and under the table deals because it was very profitable. The uh, Jiaqing imposed harsh punishments on people who actually smoked it, who are actually caught smoking it or in possession of it. And the uh, Guangzhou authorities put an embargo on the import of it in 1796. But these measures seem to have been unsuccessful for various reasons. Uh, for their part, the EIC merchants and private traders had to find creative ways to continue the now illegal trade um, or risk being cut off from their supplier of tea, basically. And so the EIC sold opium through proxies without much care that they were breaking the law. Uh, between 1800 and 1820, when uh, in 1820 Jiaqing died, opium imports to China doubled. Uh, the Chinese continued attempts to find answers and then eventually had to resort to drastic action. And it was this attempt to quash the trade during the uh, Zhuogong Emperor's reign, uh, who followed, I believe, Jiaqing, um, that led to the outbreak of the First Opium War. And that's why we're the baddies. I mean, talk about a tour de force, but can we please <laughs> stop and observe the sass for a moment? Uh, the the multi-layered sass. Um, not least your comments about skincare routines. So th this is the, the downside of this being a radio show. I was almost crying with laughter at points of that when you just you just piled the sass on. Um, it, I, I suspect perhaps there was a little bit of buttering up going on in that comment. Um, oh, oh, he, he might be this. He looks 20 years younger, I, I tell you. You know, I, I think plenty of us have used that line yeah. on occasion. Um, Especially to the, emperor. Yeah, exactly. But the line about, yeah, well, all you've done here is pay me tribute. Oh, for the British to be <laughs> told that line. Yeah, no, no, no. What you've done is, is pay me tribute. You might think you are the ones in receipt of the tribute. No, this is my patch. I'm literally king here. You can naff off, buddy. Exactly. I mean, it, it, there's no other way to interpret it either. Um, the British brought him ridiculous amounts of stuff, the stuff that a subservient nation would give as tribute to an all-powerful emperor. The Chinese didn't give half as much back in, a, in an official capacity, if, if, if maybe a couple of silks and stuff like that, um, and some nice tea. Uh, uh, they didn't do... <laughs> and and to, to make it worse, he didn't like some of it. <laughs> They, oh dear. McCartney brought him carriages, but the carriage, but European carriages allow the, the coachman to sit above the passenger. And you can't do that in China. So it was it was unacceptable for him to take it. He only liked like one or two of the like technical um, mathematical telescopes and stuff like that that they brought him. And he'd seen most of those before. <laughs> oh dear. Own goal. Own goal. I, I just find it hilarious. Um, talk about, you know, cutting the, the British ego down to size there. Just a little numbers calculation that I um, checked as you were talking. So you were talking about how three million pounds out of the tea trade alone, that's a quarter of a billion pounds in 2017 money. So not even in today money, um, where the pound is worth a fraction of what it once was. Um, that that's a quarter of a billion 
pounds. That's vast money. Uh, absolutely a great, incredible. A great deal of the, the Napoleonic Wars was, was essentially funded by East India Company tea. Brought, bought, brought in from China, China, pretty much the taxes levied on on the China trade and whatnot. It is incredible. What I also find quite remarkable, and what ends up rankling with me even more about the British, and you kind of explained very eloquently why the British are not the good people in this story. Um, but you know, the fairness where it's due, you know, actually that's not hugely surprising if you well, look at the whole course of exactly. British. And- I mean, imperial it's, history. it's life, right? I mean, every nation gets to choose what it's proud of, right? The British are pr- proud of the Napoleonic Wars, the two world wars, uh, and some stuff, and, you know, various things in their sort of more uh, antique history. The French, likewise, are proud of various different things. The Germans are proud of other things. The Chinese are proud of various other things. And what people forget is that exactly the same time as these things were happening, there's another guy across the other side of the world who says, no, you're the bad guys in, in my movie. Too right. And, and this is absolutely that moment. And if we're going to call one person out, and I'm always calling Napoleon out, let's call this out. This, what makes this particularly insidious for me and particularly hypocritical is, so we, we get uh, into the habit of selling drugs to the Chinese um, folks, and then we criticize the Chinese for, as a people, generally getting high on the drugs that we've sold them. You know, it's yeah, our yeah. fault that because we supply the demand quite literally. Mm. And then we go, well, look at the this is pathetic. Look at this. This this is unacceptable. Look at these Chinese people who are getting high all the time. This sort of thing would never happen in Britain, really. We, we should exert British influence over these people and help them see the way. And you just sort of go, get stuffed, mate. You know, you're you're the ones responsible for well, exactly. this. Exactly. And the worst part about that is it isn't even actually the root. Like that, that's the excuse they used. To go, which is really weird. That was one of the excuses they used to go to war over opium. The actual reason they went to war over opium because the Chinese said, "No, we don't. We don't. We've been telling you it's illegal," and they burnt a whole bunch of it in Canada. Exactly. And it's... then they went to war over free trade. Yes, yeah, you know <laughs> this uh, this idea that no, you as a country can't decide what you do and don't want to import. How, how dare it's... you? How dare you make a profit out of out, out, a monopoly out of your own trade? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got kind of echoes of Napoleon written all over it. Yes, I did just say that about British history because if you criticise one, you've got to criticise them all. But the point is, you have to be balanced and equal in your judgments. So if I'm criticising somebody. It's because they were a jerk, you know, um, come at me because you always do whichever side of the fence you fall on. Either it's it's all woke. It's not. Or it's all one sided. And I'm telling you what to think. It's also not that it, it's called history, people. This is how it works. Uh, you have to be blunt about it. The, the, the Chinese, how do they feel about European powers trying to weasel their way in? And I'm, I'm talking about not necessarily perhaps quite your average person, but as a society, you know, this growing presence, um, we talk about, you know, Marco Polo being the first person to um, reach China. And I don't know enough about Chinese history, if I'm frank, to know if that's true, whether there's other contact or quite what, but it's undeniable, but that by this point, 
Europeans are turning up a heck of a lot more than they have done in the last few hundred years. So what's the mood? Is this like, hey, there's an opportunity here or is there this sense of, who are you? Can you just go away? Yeah, um, so on the one hand, you start to get some people of you might call officialdom and those literati types starting to blame the woes of the empire on the Europeans because it's convenient to do so. Um, as you say, there's a lot of them showing up right now and things are getting worse. So they're, they're throwing off the balance of things and it's obviously their fault when you do something about that. And we don't like them getting, getting the upper hand over us and bravo, the emperors have so far managed to keep them in check unlike what happened in India. And you know, the Chinese knew what was going on in India. Um, you know, they, they kept their ear to the ground in terms of what was going on on the on, on in, next door. Um, but the other way to look at it is that indeed there was financial opportunity uh, in, 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 in sort of treating with the Europeans. Merchants, for instance, were quite happy to do deals with them. Uh, merchants, it should be said, in Chinese society were not the top rung of the ladder. They were considered very near the lowest um, because they dealt in money, uh, basically. So they'd sold their souls, essentially. And um, there is that sort of to and fro, but it should be noted that right now, people look at European involvement in China with a sort of a mixture of amusement, curiosity, and irritation. Um, because outside of this period, and outside of Guangdong province, European interference is still pretty much negligible um, to the ordinary Chinese and indeed to therefore many of the other provinces and the sort of the upper classes of them. And um, unless, you know, you, you know, unless perhaps late on with all the opium smuggling, and especially if you were far away from the coast, Chinese officials tended to just sort of buy and play the line that the Europeans were subservient to their own civilization. That was the line, essentially. Because the interesting thing about the clash of the British Empire and the Chinese Empire is they were both bigoted to the extent that they thought the other was uh, officially a lesser thing. And some of that was racial, some of that was cultural, some of that was sort of civilizational. It's a bigger subject. But um, so there was this sort of dismissive element to how people thought about the Europeans. And at this stage, therefore, yeah, the Europeans were sort of a curiosity, something of an annoyance, but not one that was taken particularly seriously, except for people stumbling around to find out why things aren't working as well as they used to, I guess. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you exactly that. You know, how are how are the Western Europeans kind of viewed? Because the if you don't understand something the inclination is to be patronizing right that's a, a knee-jerk reaction if it's different um then it's uh, so within some circles you'd call this othering um but what i would call it is look they're different ain't that quaint sort of thing that kind of mentality if you don't understand it you you tend to sort of patronize about it is there that sense of oh look bless these europeans they they have some very odd ways don't they uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, in the, the letter that Qianlong wrote to George, King George, I don't remember if it's the regents or 
King George III at the time, but the letter he wrote to the government anyway, was essentially that you seem to like my products, so I'll let you still buy them, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in charge here, pretty much pat on the head, carry on, pay my taxes. Um, I am the center of the world. Uh, there is a, there is a dual um, collision of, of, of patronization and othering occurring here. Um, maybe not everywhere. There were there obviously are some more open-minded people who wanted to learn from each other and wanted to explore the other's civilization and whatnot and their history and learn the languages and things like that. But in terms of official officialdom and things like that, it's most certainly a very kind of othering sort of uh, exchange. We have talked a lot of the way through this about dissent and revolts and instability, and it kind of feels like a, an appropriate thing to dwell on. Um, we've got four revolts that we need to talk about, some of them with very grand names. So I think we'll just kind of go through them as, as a sequence and just kind of ask you to tell us a bit about what happens, how they're dealt with, their impact, and all that kind of stuff. The first one sort of, it's almost an archetypal, it's almost like a meme of a name for something to do with Chinese history. Um, I kind of feel like you'd read it in a Tintin novel. Um, it's the White Lotus Rebellion. Yes. Um, so, the, so the White Lotus Rebellion, uh, it, the idea of what the White Lotus is, is they it comes from the name from, the, from certain religious societies. Um, the White Lotus societies were millenarian sects that traced their origins back to the 14th century and the passage of the Yuan to the Ming dynasties. Um, that, for anybody who doesn't know a millenarian uh, point of philosophy is basically the return of a savior. They're waiting for the return of a savior. And therefore propitious moments in history will trigger these groups into action. So the White Lotus Rebellion, that, I mean, that was what the, the, the group was called due to, I believe, reference to Buddhist scriptures. Um, in 1796, this lasted between 1796 to 1804. High taxes and the struggling rural economy and local dissent, uh, based on various everyday issues, were factors that could be taken advantage of by these secret societies, um, who, who tended to turn quickly into anti-Manchu sentiment among the Han, Han Chinese population. They were very, it was very easy to take a concept of something happening with a particular group and then stir up a whole bunch of, this is all the Manchu's fault. Because remember, we're subservient to a bunch of conquerors who came in in 1644 and now sit in Peking slash Beijing um, and tell us what to do and tell us how to dress and tell us how to speak. We hate them. This, this happens a lot. Now, these groups could raise armies big enough to overthrow entire provinces. And these provinces are very large and could go on for years. The White Lotus was, was, was one of these ones. And... Uh, they were awaiting the return of a Buddhist savior to lead them to enlightenment and restore the mandate of heaven. The actual rebellion, however, rose out of a tax protest and was so successful that it burst into a full-blown full rebellion um, 
that grew to incorporate many sects and also preyed on the, the other sects that believed in the second coming of various other saviors. And these banners then also drew political activists and this, the dissatisfied poor. And it was a bruising taste of things to come in the Taiping Rebellion in the 1850s, which, you know, FYI, factoid here, that is the most costly and brutal war of the 19th century, Taiping Rebellion. Google, because we don't have time for that here. It's very, very complicated. Uh, <laughs> What made it particularly worrying, though, was, was, was it was not an outside source that the government had to fight. There's one famous quote from a despairing official which sums up its tragedy, and the, it's, quote, the rebels are all our own subjects. They are not like some external tribe that can be demarcated by a territorial boundary and identified by its distinctive clothing and language. When they congregate and oppose the government, they are rebels. When they disperse and depart, their civilians once more, unquote. Now this meant that the suppression was widespread and often indiscriminate, which further embittered the hand towards their Manchu rulers. Worse, it was meted out largely by mercenaries and what they called the Green Banner Army uh, or the Green Flag Army, um, which was the standing force reserved for internal defense made up of ethnic Han Chinese troops. Perhaps 100,000 people died during the eight years of the rebellion. When it ended, Tia Ching wrote about the crisis in a letter that somehow found its way into the East India press at Canton. And it was a very sad ramble of self-justification and quite removed from anything Qianlong would have written. I mean, that's quite a, a story. It's, it's left me flummoxed. That's quite a story in and of itself. But there's more. <laughs> you know, we're not just done with the White Lotus. So we now have the, I'm going to ruin the pronunciation of this, the Miao Revolts. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I can't help you, though. I've, I've never actually heard this word spoken. I, I probably Cats should... aren't involved, <laughs> from my understanding. I, I probably should have asked before coming on, but, you know, I forgot. Uh, it's spelled M-I-A-O, uh, and I believe it's, uh, I believe it is probably pronounced Miao. Um, and that took place between 1795 and 1806, so very, very close parameters here, and they were very almost connected events. Uh, now these, the, the Miao were an, a cultural ethnic group from, and are, I should say, cultural ethnic group from southwestern China, who objected to the influx of Han Chinese immigrants being pushed into their lands due to the population crisis and the need to find land. Note as well here that the, 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 the official from the last quote in the White Lotus Rebellion was saying how much of a pain it was to fight the White Lotus because they just look like us. They don't, they don't speak a different language and they don't dress like Manchus. The Miao had some sort of distinguishing feature in their dress and culture that allowed them to be identified as rebels which is also a bad idea because that means you throw everybody in the basket and it's bad news. But they'd risen once in the 1730s and had been suppressed, but they were also affected by the strains being put upon the overstretched empire and they were just as susceptible to political and religious groups. In 1795, uh, two leaders, uh, Xi Liudeng and Xi Sanbao led their people in revolt which lasted 10 years and was brought under control principally due to the deployment of the green standards that had been brought into the area to suppress the White Lotus. 
And although both rebellions could have joined forces and brought about a really big, massive crisis, the scale of the later Taiping uh, war, they never did any meaningful in any meaningful way. And a policy of forced assimilation was brought onto the defeated Miao population. Well, we're not done, though. There's <laughs> another and then there's another one after that. Uh, this one is this title is is very sort of what's the word that I'm looking for? Almost kind of mysterious and um, oh, words fail me at this time of night. Um, it's it doesn't give much away. Somebody will tell me what word I'm thinking of. I think it begins with A. Um, maybe ambiguous is the word I'm looking for. Anyway, yeah. it's called the the eight trigrams. Mm -hmm. The 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 meaning, is, as far as I've been able to understand it, and it's by no means something I'm particularly confident of. <laughs> I'm giving you the etymology behind, um, but it refers to something called a bagua, pakwa which is a set of eight symbols that originated in China that was used in Taoist cosmology and represented the fundamental principles of reality seen as a range of eight interrelated uh, concepts or visual elements. And the why it's called this is probably too complicated to explain, but it's obviously about, it's, it's trying to speak about reality essentially. And so this was set against, this happens in 1813. So we've got past the, the big rebellions of the early reign of Jiaqing. And now we have, but, but, but you know, he doesn't escape another one. This one is set against the stated problems facing China in this period, as well as um, floods and poor crop harvests. And these, you know, as again, when you sort of put those into a, if you put those into a category with all the other stuff we've been talking about, you're getting a lot of unhappy people, and it's very easy to get them to um, to follow you into rebellion. A drifter and a hustler, as he was, as, as I have read him uh, described, named Li Wencheng, gathered some followers around himself, based on some hardship in in a local area, and he. Um, declared himself the prophesied future um, the true lord of the Ming. So he's, a, he's associating himself with a previous dynasty, uh, a, something more Chinese, you might call it, because there was an othering of the, the Manchu of the Qing by the, by the Han whenever there was a rebellion. And he joined forces with the rebel with uh, fairly obvious white lotus sympathies who declared himself the future um, uh, Matraya, which is the, the return of the Buddha. And to these standards were drawn once again, millennials and dissenters, millennials are not people with phones and funny haircuts and tight jeans. These people believe in the return of Buddha. This isn't, you know, this isn't a woke rebellion. But watch out for that, guys. It's coming. No. Um, <laughs> I have never seen Josh quite so sassy as he's been this <laughs> evening. I don't know. Uh, the world's in a mess. You might as well make fun of it. So um, to these uh, standards, again, you know, you have these people. And 
some of them were just unable, some of these were ordinary people, to be honest, who were just unable to avoid getting swept up in the tide of events. And this happens a lot in terms of popular movements, rebellions, you're just there. And it seems like what you have to do, or you're seemingly forced to act in a particular way that you would much prefer not to be involved in. Uh, one of them actually said, because some of them were captured and interviewed, in quotes, interviewed, um, in this business quote, it was death if you went and death if you stayed. He said literally that, that was why he was there. Um, the plan was much more direct and focused than either the White Lotus or the Mayo, uh, and much more political in nature. Uh, they planned to capture and probably murder the emperor and proclaim a new order. The plot was discovered, however, and the rebels were quickly scattered, but not before over 70 managed to get into the Forbidden City, aided by another perennial source of discontent, which were the palace eunuchs, uh, where they holed up for two days and a night before being captured or killed. 20,000 rebels apparently lost their lives, in addition to over 70,000 people. So actually, this is actually a very small rebellion in comparison with some in Chinese history. And I'm not kidding when I'm talking about that. If you read about rebellions and wars in China, the casualty count is absolutely mind boggling. And it's very difficult to wrap your mind around it, the numbers. Um, but the damage to the state was quite meaningful. Qing authorities noted the worrying ease with which the rebel leaders had recruited an army through simple promises of a messiah and anti-Manchu rhetoric. And no one could ignore the fact that they had actually got inside the Forbidden City either. So it was a very, it was very small, it was very contained, but it was actually very worrying at the same time. And it was sort of proof that the problems in the, wide, the wider nation were not really going away. And last, but by no means least in our list, Ching Shi and the Red Flags. Yes, um, this is the name I have given to a particular career of a particular pirate. It's technically not a rebellion in the sense of the other two, although it's similar, I guess, to the White Lotus in the sense that it was, it's sort of banditry on a high level. But um, the, this, this refers to basically the, the the, the, the pirate piracy epidemic that occurred in this time between 1800 and 1810. So although not strictly rebellion, so to speak, piracy was as a family business, much like banditry and a big problem for the government. Uh, by 1807, many pirate gangs in the South China Sea had joined together in a confederacy that was called the Red Flags. Uh, led by a woman variously known as Madame or Widow Zheng, uh, after her husband, who had originally formed the coalition. Uh, but she is more commonly known as Ching Shi, who had first, um, who succeeded to leadership, interestingly, when her husband died. And she married his right-hand man, uh, Chan Po, or Chan Pao, to, um, to solidify her position uh, as commander of the fleet. He, basically, she was the ruler and he was the general. And so she ran, called the shots and she got him to do most of the dirty work. Uh, but she also came up with a very extensive list, uh, like series of laws about what you could and couldn't do and all the punishments required that would be meted out. And they were, they're very famous among sort of pirate historians, pirateologists, if you want, um, for the fact that basically 
there are specific rules about the fact you're not supposed to abuse women and all the terrible things that will happen to you if you do that. Um, but she, you know, this was a very powerful movement, if you will. They pretty much ran most of the South China coast. Um, they, they defeated the imperial forces sent against them in 1808. And by 1809, they had about 200 ships or more. And they were pretty much, like I say, running large portions of the East and South China Sea from about um, uh, Zhejiang province down to Canton, Hong Kong sort of area. And as far east as the, the reach was as far east as the Philippines. Uh, it got so bad that Jia Qing began to ask the Portuguese and the British to help him with their bigger modern ships. And um, as it happened, Qing Shi basically, she had a great sense of when to call it quits, basically. She'd had a good run. And unlike a lot of pirates, she decided to basically accept pardon. Only she did it in a very particular way. Um, she had the big one of the biggest fleets in the East. The Imperial fleet was apparently incapable of stopping her doing anything, and she could pretty much raid whatever she wanted. Um, and so she knew this. She also knew she couldn't stay doing this forever because the, you know, the emperor was probably going to call in the British at some point. And there, a sort of an agreement, a mutual understanding occurred. And so she asked for the emperor's forgiveness and promised to retire. She disbanded her fleets and they did. In April 1810, over 17,000 people surrendered with her and she retired in comfort, outliving her husband and running a gambling house until she died in 1844. And her husband was given a, a post in the Navy, I believe. Uh, and I'm sure, well, I hope we will eventually see some sort of movie about her one day. Well, we should, quite frankly. I was half wondering, having occasionally interviewed folks on Chinese and uh, particularly Japanese history, I did vaguely wonder if there was this thing of, you know, basically their solution was to recruit her and make her part of the fabric of government, because that has been a solution um, in the Far East at various moments in time. Um, hell of a story to end with. Just to wrap things up, two kind of questions really sort of interlinked. Why is this history not better known? Is it that obvious thing of, look, we're Western Europeans, we focus on Western European history. Actually, if you're living in China, if you live in the Far East, you're more likely to know about this stuff. And then for the predominantly Western European uh, or Western Hemisphere audience, um, let's not forget my friends in the, the USA and Canada, um, recommendations for books. What, what do we need to pick up and read? Right, yeah. Um, well, when it comes to world history, every country tends to sort of look at those parts that affect them directly, I guess. Um, it's not too surprising that everybody would kind of read their own stuff first, and then if they kind of have the, the, the want, then they'll look further afield for different stories, I guess. Um, most don't read history, of course, of any sort after school, and those that do tend to stick to the ones that they can more easily grasp, I guess. Um, so except for learning about the Great War or maybe the Opium Wars, um, I guess in Britain we don't read a lot about Chinese history, except maybe at a very serious or a very subliminal, subliminal level, like a lot of 
like a lot of people understand what a Ming vase is and it's very valuable, etc. But um, very little else. They'll just know that, but they won't really know what a Ming vase means. Um, and given China's importance in the world, that is kind of crazy. I would say a lot of people know a lot more about American history than they do Chinese history. And again, given the relative balance of world power, it's kind of strange that that would be the case, um, that people don't seem to want or to think they need to know about Chinese history or something like that. Um, this being a precursor though to the, the Opium Wars, it is kind of a backwater at the same time because this will set up the Opium War. So it like will constitute like the beginning chapter. There's a few like, of a, a book about the Opium Wars. Uh, and so it's easy to brush over this, this area. And it's, it's, I guess another reason might be because for most popular history books, always look at Chinese history from a very wide angle, from like thousands of years of history, which is very daunting. And with that in mind, there is a perception that the East is this utterly indecipherable place that uh, where everything is different. And there is a, a pseudo wisdom that is that it's more honest to just admit we don't know. And then we stop learning about it because we think it's more honest not to do that rather than to try. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of reasons why this sort of this sort of period of history isn't well known, partly because I, I mean, in all honesty, it, it isn't as exciting if you want to use that term as what happened after it. Um, but um, there's no reason why it shouldn't be, and certainly for Chinese history in general. Uh, recommendations for books, I have, have for you. I have stuff that you can look for. So there are two major works on China in English currently available, and you can actually buy them in high street stores. Right now, most of the time you will see them. Um, one is John Kay's book on China. And the other one is Michael Woods, and I recommend them both. I also recommend Michael Woods' documentary, which he did before he wrote the book. He's an excellent presenter, and you'll enjoy that a lot. If you're maybe not into reading or don't have time to read, check that out. Um, they both together, the books offer a very comprehensive overview of the whole sweep of Chinese history and might allow you to pick a place to dig deeper. You know, you might choose a particular dynasty you want to read about rather than just continually read about the entire history of China. And this is probably wise that you do, because like I said before, you will, you know, people specialize in the Napoleonic Wars, which is a 20 year period. And most of the books on China cover thousands of years of history. And so, you know, pick, and, pick, pick a bit that you like and, 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 and visit longer. Um, there are also, uh, dozens of books and documentaries about the Terracotta Army and the Great Wall. Um, I like the ones by the, that are published by the British Museum because there's more pictures in those. And <laughs> there are quite a few memoirs and novels actually you could try, but you might want to check out the history books first because most of the novels and stuff are mentioned in the history books. Um, an author I really like is the biographer Young Chang who wrote a memoir about three generations of her family in China from the end of the Qing uh, period to the communist era. She wrote a biography of Chairman Mao and another about the Empress Dowager um, Sisi, which is really brilliant. 
um, I just want to, uh, and if you want fiction, uh, the one that I know most would be James Clavell. He wrote a lot of books about China. He didn't just write about Japan, actually, he wrote more about China than he did Japan. Um, and the best one of those is apparently Taiping. Is it? No, it's Taipan. Taipan is the one by James Clavell. So I guess I just want to encourage listeners who feel daunted by getting into this subject. I don't just mean the decline of imperial China. The history of China is one of the great stories of humanity. And within it are the stories of lives and art and wars and people that will actually capture you and make you think maybe Napoleon wasn't all that big a deal. And maybe there's more to this thing called history than just Europe. Oh, provocative comments to end with there, Josh. Talk about dropping the mic. I'm just going to firstly echo what you said. You know, Chinese history, properly interesting. And I say that not with any sense of authority, but having dabbled, particularly in relation to Xu Huangdi and the Terracotta Army, which is just, oh my word, the, the temptation to just go and have a second specialism on that. If I could master the language, then, you know, I'd be tempted, regardless of the fact that it's completely irrelevant to Napoleonics. Uh, it's just, the guy was properly, properly mental. I mean, <laughs> I, I sit here and critique Napoleon. Uh, <laughs> Napoleon's small fry compared to Xi Huangdi, you know? Um, just so interesting. I'd urge you to find, you know, a, a niche that, that interests you folks. Um, and just talking about the history of the Far East generally, a guy called Jonathan Clements, who I've had the privilege of interviewing a couple of times on History Hack, he uh, writes some properly crazy sounding books about stuff that you'd think this guy's tripping. And actually every single word of it ends up being true things like pirate kings um you know mass um revolutions whole nations turned on their heads it, it's remarkable some of the stuff that he writes about and it's all just fact it's not even he made it up it, you you would think that he made it up because it's so fantastical so go and look uh, up jonathan clements you'll just google him he's got his own website mm -hmm. Uh, take it from there. Brilliant guy, lovely individual. Also check out History Hack um, for the episodes where uh, he's been interviewed because there are some great ones on there. Back to the Napoleon Assist. Josh, thank you so much for your time as ever. I know you'll be back very soon for one in the War of 1812 month where we have looked at the First Nations as we'll call them. So folks look forward to that. Yes, recording has happened for some of War of 1812 month, that long fabled and uh, long awaited War of 1812 months. So that will be incoming soon. But thank you so much for your time, folks. Bullock's Grain, Good Madeira, hellion.co.uk. Go buy it. What more to say? Josh, thanks as ever. Thank you very much. A big thank you, as always, to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, and duo Teixeira. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Ross Flowers. 
and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Rachel Stark, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.